1: Data brokers offer information on active US military personnel. Current Blue noroff activity, a new gootloader variant, is active in the wild. Atlassian vulnerabilities are actively exploited. The prevalence of breaches, an update on a Barracuda vulnerability, Hacktivism in the cyber course of the Hamas-Israel War, bot hunting in Ukraine. Microsoft's Ann Johnson from Afternoon Cyber Tea speaks with Sharon Barber, Chief Information Officer at Lloyd's Banking Group, about cyber trends and financial services. Ben Yellen looks at data brokers offering information on active U.S. military personnel. And election security is in the news. An off-year election is an election nonetheless. Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Tuesday, November 7th, 2023. Sensitive personal information belonging to thousands of active duty U.S. military personnel, can be purchased for as little as 12 cents per record from online data brokers, researchers at Duke University have found. The information includes health data, financial data, location data, information about religious practices, and more. And yes, religious practices are indeed the sort of data that is recorded. Your religious affiliation, if any, is right there on your dog tags if you're in a U.S. service. The researchers note that the availability of such data poses national security risks, even though the data brokerage industry remains largely unregulated in the U.S. Information about service members can be useful to hostile intelligence services interested in building dossiers on potential targets for compromise, recruitment, or harassment. The researchers said, In short, an industry that builds and sells detailed profiles on Americans— could be exploited by hostile actors to target military service members and veterans. As a subset of the U.S. population, many veterans often still know currently classified information, even if they are no longer active-duty members of the military. Justin Sherman, a senior fellow at Duke's Sanford School of Public Policy, told CNN, It was way too easy to obtain this data. A simple domain, 12 cents a service member, and no background checks on our purchases. If our research team, subject to university research ethics and privacy processes, could do this in an academic study, a foreign adversary could get data in a heartbeat to profile, blackmail, or target military personnel. So, if they could get it from Duke, it's a lead pipe cinch the girls and boys over in the Moscow Aquarium could do the same. We'll have comments from my caveat co-host Ben Yellen on this story later in the show. Jamf has published a report on a new macOS malware strain attributed to North Korea's Blue Noroff threat actor. Blue Noroff is a suspected state-sponsored actor that focuses on cryptocurrency theft. Jamf says, The activity seen here greatly aligns with the activity we've seen from Blue Noroff in what Jamf Threat Labs tracks as the Rust Bucket campaign, where the actor reaches out to a target claiming to be interested in partnering with or offering them something beneficial under the disguise of an investor or headhunter. Blue Noroff often creates a domain that looks like it belongs to a legitimate crypto company in order to blend in with network activity. North Korea has long used cybercrime as a means of redressing economic shortfalls, caused by international sanctions and the pariah state's own failed policies. If commerce isn't working for you, try theft. SEO poisoning is when a victim's search histories are used against them, and that seems to be the initial point of entry for a new Gootloader variant IBM's X-Force has discovered. The researchers call the malicious implant Gootbot and say it facilitates stealthy lateral movement and makes detection and blocking of Goot loader campaigns more difficult within enterprise environments. They describe GootBot as a lightweight, obfuscated PS script containing only a single C2 server. It's an alternative to other more familiar post-exploitation tools like Cobalt Strike. Once installed, GootBot implants spread across an infected enterprise domain looking for domain controllers. x says... At the time of writing, GootBot implants maintain zero AV detections on virus total, enabling the malware to spread stealthily. Rapid7 is tracking ongoing exploitation of a recently disclosed improper authorization vulnerability affecting Confluence data center and Confluence server. The security firm says the vulnerability has been exploited in multiple customer environments, including for ransomware deployment. Rapid7 says... The process execution chain, for the most part, is consistent across multiple environments, indicating possible mass exploitation of vulnerable Internet-facing Atlassian Confluence servers. Atlassian issued patches for the flaws last week, urging customers to apply the fixes immediately. Armis has published a survey conducted by Vanson Born looking at cyber trends over the past year, finding that 61% of global organizations confirmed they had been breached at least once over the past 12 months, with 31% experiencing multiple breaches during the same period. The top countries with organizations most likely to report breaches were the United States, Singapore, Australia, and New Zealand. The researchers note, on an average business day, 55,686 physical and virtual assets are connected to organizational networks. Global respondents shared that only 60% of these assets are monitored, leaving 40% unmonitored. Researchers at Vectra AI have found a way to bypass a rule designed to detect exploitation of a vulnerability that affects Barracuda's email security gateways. The rule, which was developed by Proofpoint's Emerging Threats team, failed to alert on a specific proof-of-concept exploit despite successful delivery of the exploit payload. Proofpoint has since released a new rule that addresses Vectra AI's findings. The cyber attacks Israel has sustained during the present war with Hamas have for the most part not risen above nuisance-level hacktivism. A typical example is the defacement of the Maccabi Tel Aviv basketball team's website with the message, Allah's victory is near, Such hacktivism is likely to persist beyond whatever end the physical fighting reaches. SC Magazine inventories, the kind of war-driven threats businesses in particular should be alert for. It's a familiar-looking list, which includes DDoS attacks, disinformation and other influence operations, cyber espionage, data theft and doxing, and website defacements. The most consequential cyber attacks of the war so far have emanated from Iran, and the head of Israel's National Cyber Directorate, Gabi Portnoy, sees the prospect of an intensified Iranian campaign as his biggest worry. Portnoy told CNN, Iran knows that they can act more freely in cyberspace than in the physical space. We are prepared for that as much as we can. Interfax Ukraine reports the SBU's tally of bot takedowns since the beginning of the current war in February of 2022, The Ukrainian Security Service says it's taken down 76 bot farms operating on Ukrainian territory and pushing pro-Russian narratives. SBU Cybersecurity Department head Ilya Vituik said, This is no longer just about professional intelligence services. We have information that a number of educational institutions are already teaching the subjects of cyber attacks on civilian infrastructure. They want to increase the scale of attacks and the number of people who can do this professionally. By the way, they teach how to attack not only Ukrainian systems, but also partner countries. In other words, the Russians are looking at you too, Collective West. The SBU thinks that students and criminals are prime recruits into the Russian cyber services and their auxiliaries. They've got the skills, and they're appropriately biddable. And finally, today is election day in the U.S. It's an off-year election and so attracts less attention than presidential or midterm voting. But the cybersecurity experts are nonetheless watching the conduct of voting. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is running an election operations center to help secure the vote. The agency said, This election's operations center brings together federal partners, state and local election officials and private sector election partners to share real-time threat information. CISA stands ready to provide technical security support to the election infrastructure community. We look forward to seeing any lessons learned. In the meantime, access management platform provider Serbi has released a study of social media and election security that assesses various platforms for their vulnerability to account takeover and the spread of disinformation— Compared to last year, platforms increased their use of multi-factor authentication, but enterprise-grade authentication and authorization, the study concluded, continue to lag. So, as CISA would say, shields up. Coming up after the break, Ben Yellen looks at data brokers offering information on active U.S. military personnel. Microsoft's Ann Johnson from the afternoon Cyber Tea Podcast speaks with Sharon Barber, Chief Information Officer at Lloyd's Banking Group, about cyber trends in financial services. Stay with us. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Microsoft's Ann Johnson is host of the Afternoon Cyber Tea Podcast, right here on the Cyberwire Podcast Network. In her most recent episode, she speaks with Sharon Barber, Chief Information Officer at Lloyd's Banking Group, about cyber trends in financial services. Here's part of their conversation.
0: Today I'm joined by Sharon Barber, Chief Information Officer at Lloyd's Banking Group. Sharon is responsible for group wide IT service, cloud, and traditional technology infrastructure. Security and Technology Resilience at Lloyd's. And prior to this, as Chief Resilience and Security Officer, Sharon headed up teams responsible for cyber, physical, and information security activities, along with sourcing, supply chain management, and divestments. As part of this role, Sharon led Lloyd's operational resilience strategy and implementation, and the group's response to regulatory policy requirements. Sharon also led the group's incident response to the COVID-19 crisis. Sharon is co-chair of the UK National Cyber Advisory Board. That's a lot, Sharon. Do you expect to see more of that in the future? And do you think that more CISOs have ambitions to rise to the CIO role?
2: I'd like to think so. Maybe they don't all realize they have the ambition to do that. I think we should definitely talk about it more. And it does depend on your background and experience. So I think if the CISO is technical, which more and more is the case these days, and as Either IT experience or work closely with the IT teams, and I think it's a great career path and opportunity, and people should start to consider it. And if you think in you know many areas, you know technology and security are very closely linked. Everything is digital and online, and so it is very similar. And the non-technical skills are very transferable, especially those leadership skills you need in security and managing stakeholders at executive and board levels, and then also building high-performing teams. So you know, so I definitely think it is a good. Transition. Though I would say it's a different hat that you wear, no surprise. You go from setting the security standards, running the operations, and setting expectations, and security being top priority to having to trade off the risks across the ecosystem. And it doesn't mean security isn't a top priority, it just means you have to think about it end to end on the risk side. But what I would say that has been great is that as a CIO with a security background, you know, it gives you the experience and the mandate to drive security ownership right through the organization and ensure that security is considered at the outset rather than it's somebody else's job to consider.
0: Look, one of the reasons I love cyber and I've been doing it forever is it's a rapidly evolving industry. That rapid evolution, though, also requires constant innovation. Can you talk about your perspective on innovation in cyber? Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a firm believer
2: that innovation is not just a nice to have and it's critical for all of us to keep pace with the threat and stay ahead, and that's just that's not just in cyber; that's in all of our businesses. You know, and you know what we need to do is individual firms and as industries. You know, we need to be thirsty for new and innovative ideas. There are some great startup hotbeds here in London, but particularly in the US and Tel Aviv, we're trying to support the UK as much as we can. Uh, We're a founding partner of Lorca, the London Office of Cybersecurity Rapid Advancement. That's not uh, not easily slip off the tongue. But I think it's really important that we work together and we support the government cybersecurity strategy. So that's a key one for us in the UK. And as you interact with these great startups, you know, over the years, we've found some really useful technologies through these engagements. But it is wider than just, you know, leading edge technologies. It's important to build a culture and build innovation into business as usual and what you do every day making sure that your labs are building innovative ideas into their backlogs and strategies and not being afraid to fail as well you know so it's very much a mindset we have to think differently and ensure innovation is a core part of our business processes and not just something exciting done by a few people on the side.
1: You can hear the afternoon Cyber Tea podcast hosted by Microsoft's Ann Johnson right here on the Cyberwire Podcast Network. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host on the Caveat Podcast. Hey, Ben. Hello, Dave. Interesting article from the folks at uh, MIT Technology Review. This is written by Tate Ryan Mosley. Uh, and this is about how easy it is to buy data about U.S. military personnel from some of the online data brokers, uh, folks that we certainly talk about a lot over on the Caveat Podcast. What do you make of this, Ben?
3: So this is actually a pretty disturbing uh, story. It comes from a study by uh, Duke University... They approached 12 data brokers in the U.S. and asked basically what would be necessary to buy information on service members. Hmm. They were looking for things like their names, home addresses, geolocation, net worth, even things as personal as religion, their children, uh, and health conditions. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that these companies are not only able to sell this very sensitive data, but they are doing so on the cheap. So the study quotes as little as $0.12 per record. Data brokers in the U.S. are selling sensitive private data. There are many disturbing elements to the story. One is that these companies, these data brokers, have offered to sell the data with basically no vetting. And the Duke University researchers used email domains based in both the United States and in various Asian countries. Hmm. And that didn't make a difference as to whether the brokers were willing to sell the records. Really, this is a story about the utter lack of regulation we have around data brokers. Uh, And this just might be a type of catalyst for our policymakers to get involved and to institute some type of protections. If you're a data broker, I mean, you know, besides morality, what do you care if this data is getting sold and what it's being used for?
1: Well, presumably, somewhere along the lines, there was a EULA, right, where these, these service members agreed to having their data shared. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. With whatever application they were using to share that data. Right. Uh, The EULA, I'm sure they read all 600
1: pages of Of it. Of course, as we all do.
3: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, You know, before I order my uh, Dunkin' Donuts coffee, I just make sure that I go through the terms and conditions. That's right. But yeah, uh, and this has become kind of a Wild West unregulated field. And like I said, it's hard to blame the data brokers here because this is their industry. They're making money off of it. Right. Um, not illegal. It's not illegal. And yes, they. this Duke University study has now found the most sensitive group of individuals whose data is being stolen. All of us admire uh, our servicemen and women. Um, they are our best and brightest. Uh, and to see their data, especially their personal data, being used in this way, I think, is very disturbing. So maybe this can help be a catalyst to institute a broad data privacy protection um, that there requires the equivalent of some type of... Uh, Fourth Amendment search, if it's the government, or extra privacy protections, if it's simply private industry, to obtain this data from data brokers. I think that's really the ultimate goal here, is to take this out of the Wild West of regulation and to bring it under a regime that is more protective of this sensitive data.
1: Yeah. Indeed, uh, they reached out, or they being MIT Technology Review, reached out to uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who I think it's safe to say is a a usual suspect when it comes to these sort of data privacy Absolutely. things. right? Yep. Right. But she also serves on the uh, U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, and she said that data brokers are selling sensitive information about service members and their families for nickels without considering the serious national security risks. This report makes clear that we need real guardrails to protect the personal data of service members, veterans, and their families. To what degree do you agree that this could pose a national security risk? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think there's
3: always a risk that with this type of sensitive information, if it gets into the wrong hands, it could be used as a method to attack service members, especially if we're talking about geolocation data. Mm. Um, So for things like uh, attempts at terrorist attacks, I mean, this could be a, a weapon that's deployed if you're thinking about terrorist organizations, this would be a cheap way for them to obtain data in ways that they previously just would not have been able to do. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, I certainly think there is a risk out there. It's not a reason for any of us to panic, but because this data is so personal and so sensitive and it's targeting service members, I, I think there absolutely is that risk that it affects our national security.
1: Yeah. Uh, another thing that this report highlights is that some of the brokers ask the researchers to sign non-disclosure agreements so in other words you're going to buy this data from us but you can't tell anybody
3: yeah that's something that's very interesting and is disturbing to me mm-hmm. um I mean, I think that was an interesting part of the study is that the Duke researchers weren't just passively observing how this industry works, but they were actively purchasing the data and kind of uh, showing us, bearing to the rest of us who aren't familiar with the world of data brokers, how this all works. So the fact that they're trying to force them to agree to these NDAs, I think is uh, really illuminating. I think that it kind of reveals... A consciousness in some sense on the part of these companies that they are dealing with sensitive data um, and they are just trying to protect their own legal interests instead of actually wanting to solve the problem, right? Uh, which is to institute more privacy protections. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that is a disturbing uh, element to it. It's what one of the researchers called a veil of secrecy that data brokers are drawing around
1: their practices. hmm Yeah. MIT also reached out to Senator Ron Wyden, another usual suspect. Absolutely. (laughs) He said, said, not to sound like a broken record, but our country desperately needs a comprehensive consumer privacy law here to limit the collection, retention, and sale of sensitive personal information from the start. I feel like Senator Wyden could have that tattooed across his forehead. I think so.
3: Yeah, that could be the outgoing (laughs) message on his uh, Senate office Phone voicemail, right? Yeah, I uh, I wonder if they're going to bring some of these representatives from some of these companies, and for a uh, good old fashioned congressional grilling, mm. maybe in front of the Armed Services Committee, and bring some service members who've had their data uh, brokered, mm-hmm. just like uh, the study seems to indicate and make a real show of it, you know. Good old-fashioned
1: naming and shaming.
3: Absolutely. (laughs) It's very effective. I mean, how do you think we got those tobacco companies finally? (laughs) Get them in front of there and shame them to their face.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right, well, again, this is an article from MIT Technology Review written by Tate Ryan Mosley. It's titled, It's Shockingly Easy to Buy Sensitive Data About U.S. Military Personnel. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber and that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Ivan. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show is written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.